Fine Music Radio, and as you know, during lockdown, we are repeating some editions of People of Note, and this evening's edition is really in the form of a tribute to the Ravonia trialist and social campaigner Dennis Goldberg, who died earlier this week at the age of 87. A few years ago, I interviewed Dennis about his long and fascinating life, and also about his involvement with a music school in Hart Bay. People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. And I'm very pleased to tell you about my guest on the program today. His name is Dennis Goldberg. And Dennis was one of the white activists against apartheid in South Africa. As a young civil engineer, he campaigned with the ANC and then in 1961 joined Umkontu MK, the armed wing of the liberation movement. He was arrested in 1963 and sentenced to life imprisonment in 1964, along with seven other comrades, including Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu. But he was jailed separately, not on Robben Island. He was taken away from his colleagues and friends and jailed in Pretoria. After long drawn-out negotiations, Dennis Goldberg was released in 1985. And unbroken, he campaigned for the end of apartheid from his exile in London in England. And now his life has gone full circle. He resides in Cape Town, where it all started. And there's a musical link to why you're here, Dennis. So a warm welcome to Fine Music Radio. It's lovely being here, I must <laughs> say. Most unexpected. Well, I thought to myself, we are not going to have a political interview. We're going to have a musical interview because I was always intrigued to discover that music is very important to you. <laughs> I didn't. I, it always was. I must tell you, uh, we didn't have a record player at home until I was 12 years old. And then uh, El Salon Mexico, the American folk music. Uh, wonderful to hear folk music turned into symphonic music. Yes, that's the Copeland piece, uh, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, El Copeland. Salon Mexico. Yeah, and uh, then on the other side, Appalachian Spring. <laughs> and it's so wonderful. Uh, it absolutely fired me. And then, of course, imprisoned. We needed music. We needed the distraction of three hours of music every night. How did you do that? Because I was going to ask you that much later, sitting all alone in prison. How how did you access the music? Eventually, Helen Sussman, MP, bought us some records and arranged for a record player, uh, which was set up in a room in the prison. We were not allowed to touch it. We would make up a program from the records we had, and later we were allowed to buy a record every two months if we had the money. And so we built up a collection, made up a program every night. Being political people, we argued like hell about the program always. And what was interesting was that we started off with an almost totally classical program. And I heard the great Beethoven, all the great symphonies. And so you know what's coming. And so it's an actual musical education because you hear the same music over and over. A wonderful experience. And then younger people came in because the struggle went on. And that was the period of folk music and rock 
and even more arguments. And so we made a rule. Anybody buys a record, it gets played four times, and then we judge whether we want to hear it again and how often and so on. But tell me about the others that were with you, because I've just said, you know, you were separated famously from yeah. Nelson Mandela and the Ravonia trialists as a white person sent yeah. to Pretoria. So who was with you? Political prisoners? Or Poli- uh, political, prisoners. Or political prisoners. Well, generally we were kept apart. There were times when we were shoved in together while they worked on upgrading the security of our part of the prison. And the security was very, very tough. Mm. Um, so Bram Fisher, who was our defense counsel, eventually also sentenced to life. Ivan Schoenbrucker, Fred Carneson, famous names in the struggle, but Renfrew Christie and uh, Guy Berger from Rhodes University, then a professor later uh, in later life. An amazing range of people, a bunch of young people, students who got involved in the armed resistance movement, not with ANC and Mkonto, were with us for a short period. David Evans, who's now a writer, John Laredo, passed away an academic, Hugh Lewin famously wrote a book, Bandit, mm. about his period in prison. As you say, all famous names, all names that we've heard and seen. Yeah. Uh, and this was the listening group, the yes. music appreciation group, for want of a better word. <laughs> the music fighting group. <laughs> <laughs> and your love the of taste music. Taste knows no comrade. Ah, okay. <laughs> in music as in food. <laughs> and your background, did you ever play an instrument? Or? No, not until many, many years later in prison, when we were finally allowed to have what we should have had. And I bought a guitar, and I don't, I'm not a natural musician, but I can write, I can find the note and make a score. Once I've made the score, I can play from my score. It was very painful for my comrades. <laughs> and eventually I got an auto recorder, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. There were moments playing the guitar when you've got the body of the guitar against you, and it's well-tuned, and your rhythm reaches the resonance of the instrument, and it vibrates against your body that you and the violin are one thing. I never knew I could experience this. And then playing the recorder, I would play freedom songs that my comrades on death row were singing. They taught 3,000 people to sing our freedom songs. They totally controlled, 20 minutes at 8 o'clock at night, just before 8 o'clock and lights out, totally controlled, 3,000 prisoners in death row and in the hanging prison, not all punishment prison where we were as well. So moving, and I taught myself to play these melodies on my recorder and eventually express my feeling. Here were comrades going to die. We were being removed from this prison. We're told we were leaving the next day, and I wanted to say goodbye. Mm. And it came out in the music. And it was a, a remarkable experience that somehow the emotion you're feeling gets into the way you play a note, hold it back, play it a bit longer. I don't know how. Louder, softer. Loud, louder, softer, more. flattened or something. Yes. I don't know how, but it happened. It's the magic of music and, and communication. And, and, well, it taught me more about listening to music mm. because now I discovered... <laughs> I mean, when you think of pianoforte, soft, loud, but, but it's, it's the way the note is played... It can be a sharply 
played note. It can be a gently played note, not just softly, but gently. The the mood just comes through. Did you keep any of these songs? I mean, do you remember them? If if you had your recording here now, I've got them in a file. Play? No, I can't play them. I haven't played for twenty years. I was so busy with politics. I just didn't have time for music. And in prison, I could take my quarter of an hour free time to disturb my comrades. <laughs> At home, it's not so easy. <laughs> Dennis, so now I'm intrigued to know what your first piece of music is, because I've seen your list here. I won't give anything away, but it's a lovely eclectic choice, beginning with the Beatles. Well, the Beatles I heard in prison. There was a time when we were in the ordinary white prison in Pretoria and there was music every night and the Beatles were played very often and the particular song I've chosen first I think their melodies are wonderful they sound simple I'm told they're very complex chord wise but their words have a simple emotional feeling of teenagers at the time but a profundity that I found very moving in prison and the particular piece I've chosen is come together over me I've just been on a speaking tour in Germany, I think my 41st speaking tour, and I know people from all over the country who meet through me, and so come together over me. Okay, (laughs) let's listen to the Beatles. Better that I don't sing it.
think I can safely say the unmistakable sound of the Beatles and that well-known song of theirs, Come Together. The first choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Dennis Goldberg. Dennis, you spoke about your love of music, but also, just let me get this right, you live in Hart Bay, and don't you support a music group down there? I'm patron of the Kroonendal Music Academy of Hart Bay. They rent a magnificent old house under heritage protection, 150 young people from the Hangberg, Kallet area, from Imizama Yetu, and from the rich village and valley, all come together to make music together. Mm-hmm. We've been able to scrounge the instruments. <laughs> I have a lot from overseas, but also South African donors. A lot of money from overseas. I raise a lot of money for them, but a lot of people are beginning to support it. And to see 150 young people of all backgrounds I'm avoiding the ethnic terms. Yes. And social class, making music together, is what the new South Africa ought to be. And through music, the universal language of music, project founded by Dwin Chrysal, trained musician from University of Cape Town, loves music, loves children, puts them together for our new South Africa. And that's why I support it. Absolutely. Well, well done. And here, here, as I say, Dennis. But they're going to play at the Stellenbosch International Chamber Music Festival. Oh, right. They're going to play an intro program uh, just to show off their talents after coming back from the Grahamstown Festival. You see. But the Stellenbosch International Festival features you as well. And I'm intrigued. I don't know how much you can tell me about this, but Matthijs van Dijk yeah. has written a work with you as narrator about your life. Is that right? Well, he's, Tell me a little bit about it. Well, it's called Moments in a Life. And what we've done is select passages from my autobiography edited them very severely to shorten them because I talk too long. (laughs) (laughs) And he's composed music to... I wish it was Peter and the Wolf, you know, with a melody for you. But but I've heard the opening of it. Very stirring and provides an emotional background to the story. Mm -hmm. And so I tell about my first teacher, Miss Cook. Age six, I fell madly in love. And she taught me about prejudice and bias. I thank her for sending me to prison, for upholding this idea of having to have the integrity to reject prejudice and bias. She just happened to support the values of my parents as well. Uh, Not in the piece we're playing, but 40 years later in prison, I told my mother I was thinking about Miss Cook, and she said, Miss Cook, she was so jealous I'd come home from school every day, and all I could talk about was the beautiful (laughs) Miss Cook. I had six. (laughs) I wonder where Mrs. Cook is now, and if she realized the effect she's had on your life. I haven't looked for her, because I'm afraid that she might not be the tolerant, beautiful person that I knew as a six-year-old. And the dream seems to fit the music better. (laughs) But if she gets in touch, Ah. you know, she must be a (laughs) hundred. But now, who wrote the script for the... Did you write the script? Well, you said you took it from your autobiography. We worked on it together to Uh get the script. So there's Miss Cook. And then... um, there's that's going to school and the origin of my values from parents and World War Two, anti Semitism, very rife, communist parents and non racial home as much as we could at the time. 
talk about Luxmart and Goodler. Luxmart and Goodler was a comrade in Cape Town who was murdered by the security police in 1963. I talk about the Ravonia trial, about Bram Fisher, about Bram Fisher joining me in prison after the trial was over and nursing him when he was dying of cancer. And I talk earlier about leaving my family to having joined them Conto Wesiswe, being told I'm certain to be arrested under the new legislation in 1963, 90-day detention and so on, and better go overseas, become a new person, come back as a trained military person. And the difficulty of leaving family and two young children, yes, aged and, eight and six. And all this is in your... Is in this is in this yes, piece in of very music abbreviated form with with music with, playing behind yes it. to to establish the mood I suppose yes. well I know that Stellenbosch uh, the festival always records their pieces so if we're lucky we'll get a recording that we can feature here on FMR if we get your permission of course you would have my permission <laughs> and I'm sure Matthias van Dijk he would give us permission. I would. Uh, because not everyone's going to be able to get to the festival to hear no, it. No, so. but they are going to stream it live. Oh, yes. So maybe you could arrange to record it yourselves, but uh, they are planning to record it. And uh, I've just been told it's going to be played at the Folkwang University in Essen next year. They're having their 90th university fest because Professor Gareth Lubber, who's from Stellenbosch, is one of the leading people at the Stellenbosch That's International right. Festival. And he facilitated all this and set it all up, together with Nina Schumann and Peter Martins, who are the musical director and the, uh, what do you call the it, artistic logistical director. director. That's right, that's right, the husband and wife team. So let's go to your next piece of music, which is a classical piece after the Beatles, and you've chosen Schubert, one of his most beautiful and well-known songs, Die Forella the Trout, with a great Fischer discard. Tell me how this got onto the list. Because I bought the symphony the Schubert Symphony di Forella, and it's much too long to play on a short program. Dieter Fischer-Diskauer is my favorite baritone, male singer. He has such a rich voice, and he gives this song such a feeling of joyfulness of this di Forella that shoots like an arrow out yes, of the spray the of the water. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, here we go with Schubert. Bächlein hell, da schoss sie froh ein, die launische Forelle vorüber wie ein Pfeil. Ich stand an dem Gestade und sah in süßer Ruhe des munter Fischleins Bade im klaren Bächlein zu, des munter Fischleins Bade im klaren Bächlein zu. Fischer mit der Rute wohl an dem Ufer stand und saß mit kaltem Blute, wie sich das Fischlein wand. Solang dem Wasser hellet, so dacht ich nicht gebricht, so fängt er die Forelle mit seiner Angel nicht. So fängt er die Forelle mit seiner Angel nicht. Endlich ward dem Diebe die Zeit zu lang. 
Er macht das Bächlein typisch drüben. Und wie ich es gedacht, so zuckt er seine Ruten. Das Fischlein, das Fischlein zahlt dran. Und ich mit Regenglut sah die Betrogenen an. Und ich mit Regenglut sah die Betrogenen an. Well, that's the noble voice. I think you can say noble, Dennis, the noble voice of Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau and Die Forelle by Schubert, the song all about the trout, on which he based his trout quintet. Yeah. But as you said, it's a bit long to play yeah. in the program. Dennis Goldberg is my guest on People of Note this week here on Fine Music Radio, brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. And apart from the fact that you've had such an extraordinary life, the appearance you're having at Stellenbosch with the Chamber Music Festival, I thought would be of great interest to our listeners, especially when we get the recording. But you've mentioned, Dennis, a few times your parents who came to Cape Town, didn't they? And it's clear that they had a major impact on your life with regard to your philanthropic, your political thinking right from an early age. You know, we live in a world today of huge flows of people, of refugees from various crises. And I've been thinking about my own life and the influences because my grandparents and great-grandparents fled Lithuania from the anti-Jewish pogroms in the 19th century. Some went to America, my great-grandfather, my grandfather to London. So I've got a huge American family whom I know nothing about and a family in England. My father and mother, both sides, came from the same area in Lithuania met in England, married, had children, and my brother born there, I'm born in Cape Town. So the family fled from racist violence and and religious violence. Mm. My parents left England because of the poverty of a working-class life in the East End of London. Uh, My father, sailor, trade union activist, communist, my mother, communist, went to Socialist Sunday School in the East End of London, (laughs) arrive in South Africa at the depth of the Depression, Mm. but being white, are able to make a living somehow and discover the racism of South Africa and with their political beliefs can't accept it. And so unlike so many people of the time, my father didn't become rich because he was so busy, and my mother, fighting the racism of segregation and then apartheid, that making a big living and getting rich wasn't important. So I grew up with people of all races, all social classes, from university professors and lawyers and doctors to working people in their heavy boots and smelly clothes coming to eat supper with us and learning to respect people because they're people. Mm. And if I wanted the last little potato, my mother would offer it to a guest. And somehow she was a magician. There was always something extra in the pot. Maybe I've got clogged arteries now because I had (laughs) bread and dripping to fill up. But there was bread and dripping. Right. Well, is this where your first sort of, shall we say, intellectual or emotional I learned the songs of the International Brigade fighting the Franco-fascists in Spain at my mother's knee when I was five and six years old. I can sing those songs today, badly, (laughs) 
but well enough for people of the International Brigade from America, from France, from Denmark, from Sweden, from wherever in the world. And they pick up the songs and we sing them together. It's like a club of international solidarity. And I learned that the fascists were somehow bad people when I was five and six years old. When I knew intellectually what they were doing, I was even more convinced. Mm -hmm. But Dennis, how, when then did you start your real activism? Was it at school? Was it university? Or when did your life take a turn? When I was perhaps 10, 11 years old, and there were candidates for election to the Cape Town City Council or to Parliament, left-wing communist candidates, I would write envelopes for the uh, sending out the post to the voters. My goodness, at 10-11? Yes, because my parents wanted me to do it, and I still remember getting the ink all over my hands, <laughs> dipping the pen, and Moses Katani, the general secretary, stroking my head. But also Archbishop Lavis, you know Lavis Township? Mm, yes. He supported... Medical aid for Russia, and so I wrote cards and letters for him as well. And he also, so I was blessed twice by the Archbishop, Anglican Archbishop, and the Communist General Secretary. <laughs> I'm truly blessed. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I'm just—I mean, your only life is at so the end of university. Oh, right. My fellow students would say, "If you tell Dennis what's going on politically, he'll understand." I was 16 when I started. Dad didn't have money. It was a tremendous struggle. I had to study. Still took me five and a half years or six years to finish my four-year degree, a civil engineering degree. I was able to work in between uh, at the end. But I had to study. But nevertheless, I was ashamed because somehow second-year engineering students would break up the protest meetings about increasing apartheid. And I was in the minority of one in my class. And when I would say, but you know, our work comes from government. If we were building for all our people, not just whites, think of the work we could do. They weren't interested. And so it was quite lonely. Mm. But I played rugby. I could kick the hell out of a ball with the best (laughs) of them. Well, with nearly the best. (laughs) And so I was accepted Mm. because I was quite a tough guy, you know, emotionally and physically then. And you would have had to have been because of the life that you were about to undertake, where as a white person you would have received possibly even more abuse from white people and hatred. 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 When when it came to the security police and prison guards, I was the white traitor to their cause, and they showed in every way they could later. But we had neighbours who were spotting for the security police and informing. We know that because there were friends visiting a police station and somebody reporting on what was happening in our home and so on. What a a way to grow up. And yet, look what it's done for you. Well, I met a a woman who my real political activity became just at the end of my final year at university, writing my undergraduate thesis. And this young woman moved into the same block of flats. A friend of friends of my parents came to visit And that was it. We eventually got married, you know, and had children. But she was politically active in the modern youth society, a non-racial youth movement in Cape Town. And so I got involved very quickly. Uh, My mother blamed her forever for me not getting through my undergraduate thesis, (laughs) but lived with her and grew up uh, together. 
Uh, and she then subsequently died, didn't she? She died in year 2000, after yes. I came out of prison. Right. Took right, me right. back home after the 22 years in prison. I think I made her very unhappy because I was so traveling the world, speaking. Apartheid wasn't over yet. My comrades were still in prison. And I had to be active. Otherwise, why was I out of prison? Yeah. And this was the mid-80s, where we had the whole Peter yeah. Bugotta thing to deal That's with. That's right. And... Yeah. Um, and so you can't be politically active as I was and maintain a family with the love that they deserve. Mm. The love is there. The feeling is there. But you're going to go to prison, maybe hanged, maybe executed uh, out of hand. But there is a need. You see, during World War Two. I was reading newspaper headlines. I learned to read, reading newspaper headlines as a six-year-old. And I knew that my heroes were the partisans who fought behind the lines, first in Spain, then in Italy, in Russia, in Hungary, and the resistors in France, the Maquis, the resistance inside Nazi Germany, where liberty was more important than individual life. And so... I grew up knowing that at some point, if it was necessary, I would have to do this. It's tough on wives and children. Mm. Very but tough. she stuck by you for those 22 years. She did. Gosh. Yeah. And afterwards, to enable me to continue in the ANC. Because mm. I wasn't paid a salary. I got pocket money. She kept me. Hmm. Fed me, clothed me, An loved me. An extraordinary woman. She was. Case, an extraordinary woman. What I did, I did for both of us yeah. because we couldn't both be doing it. Mm -hmm. Not with children either. Uh, but she was an activist and yeah. she yeah. talked and persuaded people uh, through her humanism. Dennis, we're going to have another piece of music and you've chosen the, the great Ode to Joy theme from Beethoven's Ninth yes. Symphony. Now, this is the great freedom song of brotherhood, the brotherhood of man. Yes. Is this why you've chosen it? Absolutely. Uh, but I heard it in prison again. We had all these great symphonies. And uh, this, this heavy marching beat in the chorale, the ode to joy um, of brotherhood, as you say, because what were we fighting for except the brotherhood of, of man mankind. and women, yes. of humankind? Yes. And uh, there's this heavy beat and this delightful vitality about mm. joy and happiness uh, I wish we could achieve it and it's the the anthem of the European Union which is another story just <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's listen to this uplifting ode yeah. to joy theme from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony let's listen to it Every time I hear that, it gives me goose flesh. I've 
<laughs> Dennis, I always tell people I've got 50, 51 now recordings of Beethoven's Knife. It's a very special piece for me. And that whole last movement, apart from that extraordinary anthem sound of the yeah. Ode to Joy, is about freedom, about brotherhood, about yeah. the word. Surely all men must be united. Well, I think there's a view that Beethoven wrote it at a time when burger society, civil society, as against the landed gentry, was winning power politically and economically. And he's actually talking about this new attitude of rights which you acquire because you're human, not because it's ascribed at birth, because you're a lord or serf. It's a new freedom that is blossoming at the time. Mm -hmm. I think so. I absolutely agree. And just before, I'm talking, by the way, to Dennis Goldberg on People of Note on Fine Music Radio this week. The activist, what does one call you? Your book is called The Mission, A Life for Freedom in South Africa, your autobiography. But um, just before the break, I'm going to move away from your life now. I mentioned rather sarcastically the European Union because that is the anthem of the European Union. Uh, Just briefly, Dennis, I'd be most interested to know what you think about what has happened with Brexit and this fear that so many people seem to have about refugees, bearing in mind your refugee background. Well, you know, Britain believes it's still the leading power in the world, and it isn't. It's a failing middling power. It has destroyed its own industry. It has lived on finance and interest and investments. It has been able through its colonial wealth, partly from South Africa and the gold mines, but also long ago from India and elsewhere, to have a living standard which it can no longer sustain. And so it's squeezing its own people And at a time following the credit crisis from the American subprime mortgages 2008 onwards, life has got tougher. And one of the things that the European Union has done, I believe, is to make it possible to farm out heavy industry to poorer countries, Portugal, Spain, etc., where they can pay lower wages, make fatter profits, at the expense of the core founding group of countries. But Britain itself is being squeezed, and its working people are being squeezed. Mm. And their response is to say, these foreigners are destroying us. They come in and they get our social benefits, and so we don't want them. They're not prepared to share. They're not prepared to say, well, all the people were brought in from the Caribbean, the West Indians at the end of World War II because factories needed workers and British workers weren't prepared to work. Many had died during World War II, Mm. so there was a shortage of workers and so on. So the situation has changed. It's quite an indictment against the UK that you've just done, interestingly, because it seems as though the exit vote has been a right-wing vote. It's divided the country between rich and poor. Yeah. You know, London and Scotland all have voted in. And the rural areas yeah. have this fear that Murdoch's press possibly put into them that um, more and more refugees are going to come in, we're going to be swamped, and then what? But more than that, you see, um, there's the whole thing that Oxfam reckons that the gap between rich and poor worldwide is growing. Mm. So 1% of the world's population takes 50% of the world's income. And the gap is widening. So 
either fewer people own more or the same 1% own more, which means more and more people are poorer, and in England. So they keep squeezing the health service, for example, which was such a glowing example of what socially responsible medical health care could do, but they're ready to build new nuclear submarines. And so what I remember from Britain is a cartoon saying, come the day when the defence force holds jumble sales and the hospitals are fully financed. Hmm. That's what we're looking That's for. That's what we're looking for. But we're not. It's going the other it's way. Going the other way. And it's see. also in here, in this country. And in our the, the gap is getting wider and it should yeah. be narrowing after apartheid. Well, that was our dream and hope. And Why this is my wrong? objection to the crony economy which we inherited from the British settlers who came here in colonial times and lived well compared with the local people. Apartheid or segregation goes back a very long way. Uh, then the Union of South Africa made racism by law, and that was a, a law of the British Parliament, our Constitution. 1948, instead of English speakers, Afrikaans speakers used their political connections to get rich. Come 1994, there's a new group of people using their political connections. This is the nature of the system. It doesn't mean I have to tolerate it. I can speak out against it as I have my whole life long, from childhood. It must be nonetheless sad for you to have to speak out about it in a country now that for the freedom for which you fought, and yet this continues to happen from a different group. It is painful, but I have to say at the same time, despite our weaknesses, We've come a tremendously of long course, way in only 20 years. When I think of in the, <laughs> the height of apartheid, half of children in the trans sky were dead by the age of five years. 80 per 100,000, the figure of seven white kids dead postnatally, 80 black kids, and half dead by age of five years in rich South Africa from hunger, lack of medical care. Think of how our medical system has grown. It's in crisis because we're treating millions of people who never got care. Mm. The but then the bad management and then the cronyism means we could have done more, and that's why I want us to do more. <laughs> Shame. But the other thing is education, Dennis. We've got now people going to school, but the education is in such a terrible mess. Here. Well, is it? Because I see kids at university who would never have gone to university. Fair enough. And we have bridging courses for them. It's expensive. But they're the new graduates. They're the ones who are taking up the issues of cronyism, of corruption, of wanting a clear way forward. So it's not so bad. Show me a country in the world where everybody gets equal education. Not one. Okay. Something like 20% of British kids leave school illiterate. And they've been going to school since the 1870s. Good point. I hear you. I hear you. But we should have done better. We should have done better. Now we're going to have another piece of music. Yeah. And this now is rather intriguing. Spokes, Michiana and Lemmy special. And you seem rather keen on this piece, Dennis. <laughs> what is well, this I'll about? tell you, you see, in the 1950s, there was the call to the Congress of the people. And there was such livelihood. That led to the Freedom Charter, which led to our modern constitution. I was involved in that. 
but also there was the treason trial, and there were lots of concerts to raise funds for the defence of the 156. The Freedom Charter wanting democracy was held to be high treason by government, not by the judges in the end. They need a lot of money. And Spokes Mashiani and Lemmy Special were very popular, playing the penny whistle. And this particular recording I'm hoping we can find has the curling, wonderful, lively music out of the townships at the height of apartheid repression against a heavy driving beat. This is my version of Ode to Joy, <laughs> which is why I wanted to follow. Let's listen, let's listen. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in the history of South Africa, we have the two Pella kings. On my right hand, I have King of Kings, Levy Special. Now I hear what you mean, Dennis. Spokes, Magiane, Lemmy Special, and you called that 
Soweto's Ode to Joy. <laughs> it was a track featuring those two from the townships right at the peak of apartheid. And my guest is Dennis Goldberg. And the, one of the reasons, apart from the fact, Dennis, that you had this extraordinary life, is the fact that there's this narration piece that you've done uh, and will be doing at the Stellenbosch International Chamber Music Festival. I've got butterflies <laughs> in the tummy wondering if I'm going to fluff it or not oh, on the night. fluff it, who cares? It's part of the fun. Why be... Word perfect. But, you know, there are two questions I definitely yeah. want to ask you. You said right at the beginning and in prison and all that, you had a lot of animosities you put up with from prison guards mm. and things because you were white, you were Jewish. You made this decision to support the struggle, and you made a conscious decision to become a very active member of Umkonto Isiswe. Mm. Was that a, a difficult decision, And you d realizing the dangers you were going to put yourself into? One doesn't expect to survive taking up arms against a powerful government. But there is a need. Freedom for people. This is what I grew up believing, as I explained before. It's not just the brutality of torture and imprisonment and the sh massacre at Sharpville. I was a privileged white. I was an engineer. Humorously, my comrade said, Dennis, if you can build it, you know how to blow it up as well. We need you. We need you as a technical officer in our underground army. Will you join? I said, yes. I'd been arguing for it for a year because there was the need to deal with the armed tyranny and the increasing violence and torture and imprisonment of men and women. And there was no way forward. I don't believe in violence as a principle. And when I met Nelson Mandela, he came to Cape Town after his trip abroad and explained his view on armed struggle. It was clear that the armed struggle was added as a political measure, not because we love war. And our manifesto of Encontro with were issued by him as anonymously as the commander, said better that we negotiate than that we fight to the end. Mm. Well, it took 30 years of bloodshed, imprisonment, hangings, illegal killings by the state. And our own people were going to die and did die. But children were dying every day of hunger and lack of medical care. Apartheid was a killing machine, an indifference to human suffering. Mm -hmm. So was it difficult? Yes, because it meant leaving family, putting them at risk. I said to my son at the end, after I was out, he asked me why I'd left them. And I said, because I was doing something important. There were millions of kids didn't see their fathers because of the migrant labor system. It was like going to ask you, you, you were separated from your wife, as we discovered when you were in prison. You subsequently married again. But nonetheless, you told me a lovely story about how your son has really struggled. He's living in the UK. He loves you. He's missed you desperately through this commitment that you But you've when made. I came out, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I have to continue. And he said, well, if you don't, you can throw the 22 years away. Oh, did he? What a wonderful response of mm -hmm. understanding. Mm -hmm. A kid who'd been crying a few hours earlier, age 28, crying like a six-year-old little boy who's lost his dad, and a few hours later says, you have to be involved, otherwise you're wasting your life. My wife his mother, and my mother, his granny, brought him up well. <laughs> yes, and he's like very it. close to me now. If I don't speak to him enough, he phones me. 
And Dennis, are you now in the twilight of your life, the autumn of your life? You seem to be still very active. You do lots of tours. Doing I'm in tours. early winter. Are you in early winter? Okay, yeah. fair enough. Tell me how you feel. I feel excited and fulfilled. I know people literally in many countries. I speak all over the world wherever I'm invited. I raise funds for these wonderful social projects, the music project, a psychotherapy project in Johannesburg. I'm creating a trust fund, my legacy foundation, to build an art and culture center in Hart Bay. It's going to cost a lot of money, which I don't have. I want a permanent art and culture center for the community where people can come together to learn the skills and be trained in art and culture in whatever form, dance, music, painting, sculpture, photography, filmmaking. That's my dream. And that's what I got involved for, for the future of our country. And our country's future is our young people. That's what I want as my legacy. And it's going to happen. People in Hart Bay are helping me do it. Dennis Goldberg, your autobiography is called The Mission, A Life of Freedom in South Africa. The new edition from Kentucky University Press is called A Life for Freedom, The Mission to End Racism in South Africa. <laughs> right, they turned, it, they around. turned it around. And I think you've succeeded spectacularly. It's been an honor to have you on our program, Fun Music Radio. So, Dennis Goldberg, thank you very much. I never thought playing the record in prison would bring me to FMR. <laughs> well, here you are. Thank you, Dennis. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.